Hello and welcome to the Kupai Middle East Briefing Podcast. I'm your host, Kasim Hafiz, and thank you for joining us today. We are, it's March, we are a quarter of the way through 2021 already. Time really is flying. When you're having fun, I don't know if it's been fun, that's all a question of interpretation. We have another fantastic episode ahead for you. I know I say that every week, but I genuinely believe it. We have a special guest. We have Jonathan Spire, who is a Middle East analyst and journalist. And I'd honestly say maybe the James Bond of the journalism world. Hang around and you can hear from him some of the incredible things he's experienced and seen. And his insights are really important because of his on-the-ground first-hand experience and knowledge. We have the news round coming up momentarily. And near the end of the show, we will have some biblical inspiration for my colleague, who you don't want to miss because she's really cool and really inspiring. So let's move on to the news round. I do this almost every week. I call it the news round. Sometimes I call it the news roundup. Formally, it's the news roundup, but sometimes I'm going to call it the news round. That's just the way it is. Apologies if anyone's offended. No one should be offended because there's nothing to be offended about. But I thought I'd put it out there. Okay, straight to the news. So a number of European and American diplomats told the New York Times that they believe Washington and Tehran could find their way to holding informal talks on the nuclear deal within weeks. They said that the sides may agree on taking simultaneous steps to return to the deal that both have abandoned. In recent months, Iran has repeatedly taken steps to violate the deal and turn up the heat on the United States, including enriching uranium past the accord limits, and barring UN inspections of its nuclear facilities. Well, I think that last sentence really sums up the situation really well. Um, The Iran deal was a bad deal. There's no ifs, buts, maybes. And I really hope that the voices in this administration that see the dangers of the regime in Tehran, see the terror and the chaos that is spreading and the danger of a nuclear run are, you know, forceful in that. Look, I don't believe that this is a question of deal or no deal. I believe that a better deal is needed because simply put, the previous deal was not sufficient and it had failed in many of its parameters. Elsewhere, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was forced to cancel a planned whirlwind trip to the United Arab Emirates, Israeli officials announced. This was due to Jordan delaying an approval for his flight path over the Hashemite Kingdom. A new date for this trip to the United Arab Emirates will be arranged and has yet to be announced. The Prime Minister's office said the trip was called off because Jordan delayed approving the Prime Minister's flight path over the country. The Prime Minister's office said this was apparently in retaliation for the Jordanian Crown Prince's council trip to the Temple Mount on Wednesday, which he called off amid a dispute with Israel over entry permits for his security detail. Basically, here we go, international diplomacy. If you don't get your way, you then act 
petulantly. Um, so good to see that the attitude of eight-year-old children is still prevailing in global diplomacy in the Middle East. Great job, Jordan. Elsewhere, now this story is kind of obsolete because of the Prime Minister's trip being cancelled, but it's still interesting nonetheless. So bear with me on this. So Prime Minister Netanyahu was scheduled or it was reported that he could have been meeting with Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman during the planned visit to the United Arab Emirates. The public broadcaster in Israel, Khan, said that there were advanced contacts on setting up the sit-down as part of Netanyahu's except expected meetings in Abu Dhabi. So the report didn't cite a source and it didn't provide further details, but it's an interesting report nonetheless. Um, Israel and Saudi Arabia have been circling each other, the threat from Iran, the changing Middle East as we're seeing countries embracing Israel, Saudi Arabia has been reported to be next or on the verge So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Because Saudi Arabia establishing diplomatic relations with Israel would be huge. I mean, it would be paradigm shifting in not only the Middle East, but the Muslim world. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that story. Back in the United States, Secretary of State Antony Blinken testified to the House Foreign Affairs Committee and reiterated his position that the United States opposes the ICC probe against Israel. It remains our view that jurisdiction is reserved when a state consents to it or there is a referral by the United Nations Security Council. Neither is true in the case of Israel and the Palestinian matter, nor is it true in the case of the US in Afghanistan. So Secretary of State reiterating uh, similar sentiments to Vice President Harris when she spoke to Prime Minister Netanyahu saying that the United States supported Israel in this probe by the ICC. This probe by the ICC is absolutely absurd on many levels, uh, which I don't want to really go into here, but it doesn't make sense. There are inherent biases in multiple facets of it, including the date from which they're investigating incidents. It's just, I'd say criminal, call the ICC criminal, but just shows that the world really has, the world's institutions have their priorities really mixed up. And ultimately the people who suffer here, it's not even Israel. Israel will thrive. Israel will continue to do incredible things. It is those who are truly being deprived of human rights. Those who are truly being oppressed are the ones who are are losing out here because the ICC is playing political games at the behest of the Palestinian leadership. And a final piece of news, which is something we'll actually touch on later on in my interview with Jonathan, Saudi Arabia announced that it would guarantee global energy security and deter further attacks on its infrastructure. This is after a missile and drone assault on the world's largest oil export terminal. The attack on the kingdom's Rust Turner report on Sunday caused a brief spike in oil prices and was claimed by Iran-backed Houthi fighters in neighboring Yemen. Once again, Iranian-backed groups causing terror, mayhem, and attacking Saudi Arabia as they've been attacking American troops in Iraq and elsewhere. That is all we have for the news roundup today. Now for a quick message from Kufi. In honor of Israel's Holocaust Memorial Day, Yom HaShoah, which will be celebrated on April 8th and 9th this month, 
Christians United for Israel will send you a special gift with your donation of any amount. As a reminder of our solemn duty to remember the horrors of the Holocaust and to never again allow such evil to occur. Receive Kufai's I Remember lapel pin, designed and made in southern Israel to commemorate the lives of those who perished in the Holocaust and stand in solidarity with the Jewish people. You will also receive a remembrance certificate with the name of a Jewish person who perished in the Holocaust so you can honor them and remember. It is our privilege to defend Israel and vow that never again will the Jewish people stand alone. Receive your lapel pin and remembrance certificate today with your gift of any amount by visiting www.kufi.org forward slash march. That's www.kufi.org forward slash march. Okay, now on to our interview. Jonathan Spire is a journalist and a correspondent for Jane's Information Group. He is a research fellow at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security and the Middle East Forum and is the founder and executive director of the Middle East Center for Reporting and Analysis. Spire writes the bi-weekly Behind the Lines column at the Jerusalem Post. He holds a PhD from the London School of Economics. He is the author of Days of the Fall, a reporter's journey in the Syria and Iraq wars, and the Transforming Fire, the Rise of the Israel-Islamist Conflict. Jonathan is based in Israel, in Jerusalem, and I met him a number of years ago, and his analysis and his insight, I think, of unparalleled. And he is such an important, I don't say voice, because I don't think that gives it full credence, but he is such an important source of knowledge especially with the issues that are concerning in the Middle East. And I'd like to welcome, joining us from Jerusalem, Jonathan Spire. How's it going, Jonathan? Very well, thank you. That's good to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to just launch straight into our first kind of question. Mm -hmm. So there are like a million and one things that I want to discuss with you and given your knowledge. But the first thing I have to ask, how does an Israeli journalist end up on the front lines of places like Aleppo, Baghdad, Damascus, Mosul, Idlib, and Hasaka during some of the most violent and some of the most violent and the most upheaval in the Middle East. I remember the first time I met you in Jerusalem and I think you'd just come back from somewhere in Kurdistan and I'm like, who is this guy and what is he doing? So if you could explain a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in those let's say, situations? Sure. Well, um, yeah, I've been focusing on the Middle East for the best part of two decades, a little bit more than two decades, in fact, now, in my work as a, as a journalist, a reporter, and a researcher. And as you know well, uh, about 10 years ago, just over a decade ago now, um, our region was really torn apart by a whole series of upheavals, uprisings, revolutions, counter-revolutions, the whole, the heart of that kind of pretty uh, stagnant and unsuccessful, but nevertheless stable reality, relatively not up to that point, was just torn apart. And, you know, it was a fascinating process and it was a, a 
fast-moving process. And I'd already been reporting in the field uh, a few years prior to that. I'd spent time in Lebanon and in northern Iraq and so on. But, you know, there was just no way that I was going to miss the opportunity to look very close and deep into that historic reality because it was just apparent to me and everybody else that you know we were witnessing uh, history in the making and huge change and stuff on the events on the move very quickly and as a result of that and as a result of the good contacts that I had because I'd been working on this stuff for a while in Syria and in Lebanon and in Iraq and in Turkey, uh, I began immediately to, you know, bother friends and colleagues in those countries to say, look, I want to get into this. Let's let's get it together and let's head for the front lines. Let's head for where it's going down and let's do our job of, you know, reporting and bring back the stories and, and you know, and developing and explaining what's happening here. So I started uh, doing that. And basically from about 2012 until essentially until COVID-19, closed mine and other people's operations down in early 2020. So for a space of about eight years, uh, I've been reporting very closely from those areas. I'm based in Jerusalem, but pretty much I've been going on reporting trips every three months or so on average, something like that. So, right, it, it just it, it's become a normal reality. But you're quite right. When you add it all up. It, in the 2021, it looks like a long list of some pretty, you know, quite dramatic places and areas and events, Damascus, Baghdad, and, and the rest of it. But what it's all about is it's about the job of reporting and analyzing, you know, that emergent reality, which I believe to be of immense importance also to the people in those places, not least, and in fact, most importantly of all, you know, to the people actually living through it, but also to people here in Israel, and of course, also to people in the United States, just from a human point of view, but also from a policy point of view. The United States remains you know, a vital uh, player in this region. So making sure that American publics and Western publics understand and have a clear picture of what's happening is, I think, absolutely vital as well. And that's been a huge part of what I and others you know, have been doing over the last uh, decade or so. Yeah, I mean, I can speak for myself in my role at Kufi. A lot of your research I lean on because you guys point things out and highlight trends way before their mainstream stories. Uh, and we'll touch on some of that stuff later on. But, I mean, it is invaluable. But, hey, look, I... You guys are taking the risks out there. <laughs> like, I appreciate the research, but, you know, you guys are out there. So good job. Um, Thanks. We're doing our best. That's what we want. That's the impact we're hoping to have. So it's nice to hear that it is, you know, interesting people in that way. That's fantastic. No, for sure. Uh, so have any of these or, or any other experiences reshaped how you view the Middle East at all? Um, that's an interesting question. I think that what it has done is, you know, just being there makes the whole thing much more human, obviously. I mean, that sounds like a cliche, but, you know, when you actually do it, you realize the extent to it. Being familiar with the actual impact of some of this stuff, I think, does to some degree uh, inject a kind of moral element, if I can put it that way, into the work that I and my colleagues are trying to do, because it's never just about, you know, chess pieces on a board and, and sort of 
cold analysis of this or that process. And I'll give you an example that when I was reporting uh, in Syria in uh, the summer of 2012, when the uprising there had just broken into Aleppo city, the second biggest city in Syria, you know, there I witnessed uh, the Assad regime's air force uh, engaging in deliberate, systematic bombing of infrastructure in eastern Aleppo city, which was controlled by the rebels at that time. I witnessed it from close up. I mean, I was very close to the Dalar Shifa hospital uh, in August 2012 when it was hit by, by fighter aircraft dropping bombs on it. And that just brought home to me a number of things, really. I mean, one what it brought home to me is the importance of statehood. You know, we tend to take the fact that we're citizens and members of states for granted. What that experience taught me was that, you know, the world is a very insecure place and citizenship in a strong, well-defended state should not be taken for granted because what I witnessed in Aleppo in August 2012 was what happens when a group of people are, you know, abandoned by their own state, which effectively declares war on them. You know, at the same time that no other state is coming to their rescue and did, and did not come to their rescue, and just how helpless and forlorn their situation was, you know, men, women, and children, and that's something which I think you know has an impact on you, and it just makes you understand how vitally important this stuff is when we talk about political processes, when we talk about military organisations, when we talk about justice and injustice. You know, just how visceral and direct this stuff is at the sharp end, you know, and the Middle East in many ways has been at the sharp end, I would say, global affairs over the last decade or two. So, yeah, in that respect, I think there's no substitute for reporting on the ground. I'll give you another example, which is more to do with how I think reporting on the ground makes your ability to analyse better as well, not just in terms of broader moral conclusions, but in terms of getting it right, you know, hearing, hearing the signals through the noise, as we always say about what we're trying to do. You know, when I was in Damascus in, uh, in uh, spring of 2017, I managed to get in there with a delegation of supporters of, the, supporters of Assad's regime. It wasn't an easy thing to do because the regime wasn't giving visas at that time to journalists, which is why we had to have recourse to those kind of methods. But the point I wanted to make is that, you know, contrary to the propaganda which was reaching global media at that time and impacting on global media, where we were all being told the Assad regime has recovered, the Assad regime has won, and the Assad regime is now on its way back to restoring the pre-war situation. When you actually went into Damascus behind the curtain of the regime's propaganda, which most journalists just couldn't do, uh, you saw, I saw, you know, just how weak that regime was. You saw the long queues of people queuing up for, for subsidized bread, you know. We saw the power of the Russians and the Iranians on street level in Damascus and the helplessness of the regime's state authorities in the face of Russian and Iranian will and sometimes Russian and Iranian you know, wildness and, uh, and uh, criminal behavior on the streets of Damascus. And that very much colored my analysis after that. And I went a little bit against the grain at that time, saying, no, it's, this is not a regime victory. Syria has ceased to exist. Syria is occupied by foreign powers, including Iran and Russia. And I think since then, I feel somewhat vindicated that now that's a much more mainstream analysis and people, I think, have come to realize that. But at that time, they didn't. And it was, wasn't because of any greater analytical ability on my part that I managed to get to that. It was simply because I went there. And once you were there, you could just look around and see, no, 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 
the story we're being told by the regime and by its supporters and by journalists who just have no other source of information is not accurate. And there's another story to be told and we managed to tell it. So I think that's another way in which just being there on the ground gives you an enormous advantage. It, it cannot be uh, overstated the extent to which you know, eyes on the ground in this age of, you know, the information revolution and the internet and social media and all, eyes on the ground, you know, are essential if we're going to get accurate information back to our publics and back to our elected representatives and governments too. Yeah, I mean, I remember that whole, when you wrote about that, because it was the prevailing opinion. It was Assad has won, Syria is going to be business as usual, and... It really was a minority opinion when you wrote about it. It was a, you were, like you said, very much going against the grain. Um, but I want to talk about one of the things you mentioned about Iran. Um, and in particular, the proxies and militias. You know, we everyone talks about Hezbollah. You know, even Kufa, Hezbollah, we know about, we talk about the threat Hezbollah poses. But again, through the research that you and your colleagues have done, I've learned that there's so much more than just Hezbollah when, it, when we talk about Iran and its networks. And can you tell us a little a bit about its networks and proxies and how dangerous they actually are, but also the how they are kind of intermeshed into the situation in Syria also? Yeah, sure. So first of all, it's really important to remember that Hezbollah, Lebanese Hezbollah, is just one of the Hezbollahs. And that these Hezbollahs, these parties of God, so to speak, are are effectively franchises established by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, you know, a branch of the Iranian state, Islamic State, Islamic Republic of Iran, and the Iranian security forces. It really is as clear as that. And again, this is a work, something where we have to sort of cut through the propaganda because so much of sort of mainstream media coverage on this subject, as you know, Kassim, will say something like, yeah, it's complicated. You know, on the one hand, there is an Iranian influence on Hezbollah. On the other hand, it's a local homegrown phenomenon. That's the way to sound smart in front of your friends and colleagues at Middle East analyst uh, gatherings and conferences. I'm afraid that's just not accurate. There are occasions when you know, the truth is clearer than that. It's not halfway between everybody's opinion. You know, that can be halfway between everybody's opinion can be the result of, of a successful disinformation campaigns. And this is an example of that. That's the story that Iran wants to tell us. That's the story that Nasrallah and Lebanese Hezbollah want to tell us. It's not accurate. These organizations are franchise organizations established by, supported by, and to a great extent controlled by the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps uh, there in Tehran. Now, Lebanese Hezbollah is the first example of an organization of this type. Why? Because Lebanon was kind of the first Arab state to collapse and fragment. It collapsed and fragmented in a way two decades before the general collapse and fragmentation that came with three decades, that, you know, that came three decades later. Lebanese Hezbollah, founded in 1982 by the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps in the framework or context of the Lebanese Civil War on since 75 and the Israeli invasion of 1982. And it was established as a political military franchise of Iran. Since then, fragmentation and collapse in the region has spread, of course. Iraq has fragmented and partially collapsed. Syria has fragmented and partially collapsed. Yemen has fragmented and partially collapsed. And in all those spaces, what Iran has set out to do and has largely achieved is the establishment of a parallel 
Hezbollah, a parallel to Hezbollah in the local context. So in Iraq, such organizations as, well, Iraqi Hezbollah or Qtaib Hezbollah, as they're called in Iraq, or Asaib Ahl al-Haq in Iraq, or the Badr organization in Iraq, or a number of organizations in Syria, the 313 Battalion, Qawwat al-Ridda, uh, or of course the Ansar Allah or Houthi movement in Yemen. These in many ways are parallel projects to Lebanese Hezbollah. It's the same formula. All of the organizations in question are based on, or that's, that's not, that is complicated actually, but the most important of the organizations in question are based on Shia uh, Muslim communities in the areas in question, and they are organizations that combine political and military activity, and they are organizations that operate on behalf of the Iranian interest. And again, I don't want to sound overly schematic here. But when people say, well, yeah, but actually it's very different. The Houthis, for example, people often say are not that. They weren't founded by the Revolutionary Guards. They're their own thing. Yeah, that's right. But again, when you look closely at it, also in the case of Yemen, you find it's true that Ansar Allah, the Houthis, were organizing on a certain level prior to the Iranian assistance. But they were organizing on an ideological basis of support for Iran, supported by the same uh, teachings of the same clerics that the Iranian regime uh, bases its ideas on. And they got serious when real Iranian support started coming in, in terms of both weaponry and money and political support and organization. So this is a region-wide project in which Iran is making use of often very impoverished and very unfortunate communities in these countries in order to recruit their young men, often for very or usually for very small amounts of money in return for those guys and their families to uh, to mobilize and weaponize them for the Iranian political project. In Syria, that project, that process has been absolutely vital for the support, uh, for the, rather for the survival of the Assad regime. Assad was short of, of guys in the beginning of the war in Syria, short of people who were willing to take a bullet for him, frankly. Yeah. His regime rested on a very narrow base of support. It was the Revolutionary Guards Corps who came in in 2012, 2013, and created whole new military structures for him on the basis of the know-how of the Revolutionary Guards Corps and recruited people armed them, clothed them, organized them, and sent them into action against the largely Sunni Arab rebels in Syria and held the rebels at bay and preserved the regime in that moment. So this has been, this has been and remains an enormously consequential uh, regional project for Iran. I would say, and many others say it too, that it's brought them de facto control of at least part of three Arab countries today. Because arguably four, certainly three Arab countries, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. And I would say also a good chunk of Yemen too. Um, and, you know, at relatively low cost in terms of money, at very low cost in terms of Iranian life, which is important to note They they tend to send the Arabs to, to get killed, but the Iranians, they tend to do not want to commit in the same way. The Iranians have emerged as, you know, the most potent challenge, I would say, to the post-Cold War U.S.-led uh, order in the Middle East, and they're, they're posing a very a coherent challenge indeed. And you know, this is still, I would say, at its in its early days or at its height. And if we look at just the most recent events, even of the last uh, 24 or 48 hours, you know, if we think of the attacks on uh, Ras Natura in uh, Ras Tanura in uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, just uh, just yesterday morning, 
you know, drone attacks and then a ballistic missile attack on Dahram, belonging to the Saudi Aramco oil, state oil company. Yet you have the Houthis claiming responsibility for this. But you have to ask yourself, wait a minute, how serious do we really think this is, you know, a local you know, Yemeni guerrilla organization is launching, you know, I mean, ballistic missiles at Aramco facilities and sophisticated drones at Ras Tanura? Or do we think much more logical, I would say, this is part of actually an Iranian state operation, which is making use of these problems as a form of deniability, but which is without a doubt, you know, promoting a very aggressive, very potent Iranian uh, regional project of which the nuclear program is also a part, but of which the proxy militias play, in which the proxy militias uh, play an absolutely vital role. So you mentioned Saudi Arabia, and this kind of maybe veering off a little bit. But it's always interested me because Saudi Arabia has a significant Shia minority where there's always been, let's say, issues. And, you know, there was, I think, when Sheikh Nimr was executed, he was accused of being uh, an Iranian agent and all these things. To what extent is Iran influencing, if anything, in those Shia communities in Saudi Arabia? And are there any implications of that long term? Because I feel that like that is something that isn't really talked about or discussed in general. Yeah, it's not talked about. I mean, as you know, yeah, we're talking about Eastern Saudi Arabia. You have the large Shia community and you have a great deal you know, of very large oil, uh, yeah. the presence of very large oil resources there as well. So it's a potent, you know, potentially dangerous mix for the Saudi state in this regard. Uh, everything which I'm aware of, and I've never, I've not visited Saudi Arabia myself, but everything which I'm aware of is that the Saudi state, frankly, you know, keeps a very, very tight hold on Eastern Saudi Arabia in, ter- in security terms. That's an area that's very closely watched, and very closely guarded. And I think what the evidence suggests is that the Revolutionary Guards Corps and this model of creating proxy militias, you know, is not. Uh, is not foolproof, it's not fail-safe as, as a method. It works very well where states have completely or partially receded, you know, where there isn't, where, where there aren't the organizations, the security structures of a powerful state to watch over the population and prevent any such attempt to insert subversion, which is what the Revolutionary Guards Corps does. And I think Eastern Saudi Arabia serves as a good example where you have a Shia population that has grievances, including, you know, by the way, extremely justified grievances as far as uh, as anyone can see, but they're not able to begin to organize either independently or with Iranian help because the Saudi state has a very heavy hand on that area. And so it just prevents that from coming about. An interesting sort of uh, example of, uh, of, of the middle of these processes where you haven't had complete state collapse, but you have a much weaker state than Saudi Arabia, is worth looking at. And that would be Bahrain in the early stages of the Arab Spring. Bahrain is a majority Shia country ruled over by a Sunni monarchy, a, a potent and, and you know inherently fragile uh, cocktail, so to speak, for possible instability. And indeed, in 2011, 
you began to see large demonstrations there against the background of the Arab Spring. And you saw also attempts by the Iranians to capitalize on that uh, unrest and instability. And there what you had was you had a military coalition effectively organized by Saudi Arabia that intervened and just put an end to the demonstrations uh, you know, with, uh, with, with a certain degree of force. And so just to you know, damp down the unrest. So where you have strong states, the Iranians find it much more difficult to get organized. But where you have weak states and partial collapse, and I think importantly, it tends to be important in the mix, where you have a significant Shia community also, that's the, uh, that's the mix in which they tend to do very well. Just one more point on this is, is to say, when we talk about this specific issue of proxy organizations, proxy militias and organizing them and deploying them, uh, the Iranians don't really have any any serious competitors in the region. You know, they're not an all, they're not an all knowing, all powerful country. It's a very weak state in lots of ways. It's a third world country in lots of ways. They certainly can't face Israel if you think about conventional military power or even conventional intelligence uh, capabilities. You know, but when it comes to this specific area of proxies and utilizing them, on that in that area they have no real uh, competitors, no real equals and uh, that's been a very very useful skill to have in the arabic speaking world over the last decade or so as we can see with regard to lebanon iraq syria yemen and the places we're talking about well so you talked about uh previously the attacks in Saudi Arabia on the Aramco facility. Uh, there was also recently an attack on an Israeli cargo ship. Mm. And also, I, I think I read this morning that there are some reports are saying that the, the recent oil spill in Israel was done by Iranian ships. So a lot of the blame is being squarely pointed at Iran. Can yeah. you talk about a little bit about this, if you believe Iran is responsible for, for the attack on the Israeli cargo ship, the situation in Saudi, and also like why now and what is what would be the aim mm. of it? What, what is Iran's goal with these attacks, if sure. they're responsible? Yes, indeed. Well, with regard to the, the explosion on the, uh, the hold of the cargo uh, ship in the Gulf of Oman, the Israeli-owned uh, cargo vessel, uh, from what I'm aware, the nature of the attack, which appears to be that it was as a result of limpet mines being placed uh, on, the, on the body of, of the ship, uh, points to the Iranians simply because that's a method they've been known to use in the past for targeting shipping of their enemies, also of the Emiratis and others uh, in the Gulf. Uh, you know, they're active in that area. The Revolutionary Guards Naval Corps are known to favour this kind of uh, of attack on ships, and of course, you know the Iranians, and indeed, and, and pretty much nobody else actually in that in that area have you know very strong motivation for carrying out uh, an attack on an attack on Israel because the Iranians regard themselves as having an open account uh, with Israel because of Israel's activities, alleged activities against the Iranian nuclear program, up to and including, of course, the killing of Mohsen Fakhri. Uh, in Tehran just a couple of months ago, uh, you know the uh, the person who was seen as being perhaps the, uh, the key figure without parallel inside the Iranian nuclear program. So the Iranians have a long and open account with Israel on this stuff, and that and the methods used against the cargo vessel 
would seem to point to Iranian uh, involvement on this uh, in that case. With regard to the uh, vessel that was responsible for the oil spill on Israeli shores in recent days, um, the evidence that there is evidence now that this clearly was uh, an oil an oil tanker that was engaged in uh, shipping oil on a contraband basis to Syria. Syria obviously is under very uh, grave uh, or very serious sanctions and the oil producing part of Syria is out of regime hands. It's controlled by the Americans and their Kurdish allies in the east of the country. So Assad's regime is one that's hungry for oil. Uh, and this, it has been established, was a tanker you know, bringing oil to Syria uh, from Iran. But the issue of whether the spill was deliberate remains somewhat more uh, unclear. The allegation was made by the Israeli uh, environment minister, Gila Gamliel, uh, it was not endorsed by any of Israel's security organs. And we were told in the media, at least, that security officials were taken by surprise by the by the minister's announcement. Let it be said that, you know, being a minister in an Israeli government is obviously a, a very respectable and great thing to be doing. That doesn't mean to say that everybody who's an Israeli minister is, you know, a leading global statesman or stateswoman who it couldn't be believed would ever have just made a, a remark without basis, let me put it that way. So, you know, we shouldn't uh, take it, uh, you know, as gospel, if we can put it on, as we would say in, in, in Judaism, just because Gila Gamliel said it. Having said that, there is, uh, in the last 24, last 24 hours, there is a very respected uh, maritime, a publication on maritime affairs called Lloyd's List that appears to have written an article uh, endorsing that, or at least that's how the Israeli media have reported the Lloyd's List article, saying, yes, this appears to be that they said it appears to have been deliberate. Uh, it's not quite clear yet, and as a journalist, I, uh, I know, and I think you know also, how these things can take off. It's not quite clear yet if Lloyd's List is actually basing what it's written on something more than a statement by the Israeli environment minister. <laughs> so I okay. definitely be careful on this. You see what I mean? Because you can easily end up with yeah. an echo chamber where everyone will say, well, I, I'm saying this because that guy over there said it. And then it turns out, that, yeah, but that guy over there said it because he heard that you said it. So this is a much less clear one, and we have to be careful with the media noise, again, to try and hear the signals. But there is undoubtedly, and this is the important point, there is undoubtedly a pattern of increased Iranian subversive activity across the region over recent uh, weeks or over recent, uh, the last couple of months, basically. Now, and we can point to a number of events. We talked about the cargo uh, vessel. We talked about the attacks on Saudi Arabian facilities or Rastanora and Dahran. Uh, we could add to the list, I would say, the offensive currently being undertaken by the Houthis on the oil city of Marib in central Yemen. Very importantly, we should also have, which we didn't discuss yet, the attacks on U.S. facilities in Iraq, on the uh, U.S. facility at the airport in Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan in, uh, in late February, on the attack on the Ain al-Assad uh, airbase and the attack on the Balad base as well, overall with the loss, unfortunately, loss of life of one uh, American contractor. So, you know, this is a long list now over a short period of time of a very significant, you know, uptick in Iranian activity. And I would like to also note, without being able to say for certain whether this is part of the same process, but I'd like to also note the murder of the Lebanese dissident, anti-Hezbollah, Shia uh, dissident, uh, Lokman Slim, in late January 
on the streets of uh, South Beirut. You know, that's also unusual. Hezbollah doesn't usually rub out and murder its most prominent critics in that way. It's usually a bit more careful. So put all that together, you've got a very significant uptick of Iranian uh, subversive activity across the region. Why is this happening, you ask? Yeah, well, that, of course, is the million-dollar question. Um, I can only give you my own sense on this, which is the following. I think that the Iranians sense right now that they've got an administration in the U.S., which has distanced itself from Saudi Arabia, removed support from the Saudi war effort in Yemen, took a long time to call up Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, in Jerusalem, and is very, very clearly looking to get back as quickly as it can to the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement with Iran, which, of course, the previous administration pulled out of uh, just over a couple of years back. So I think that they sense this is an administration that very much wants to talk. I think the Iranians tend to intend to push a very hard bargain, which will be the immediate removal of sanctions and essentially a return to the JCPOA as was without significant alterations. And I think what they're currently doing is they're, prepare they're prepping the ground for that. It's a kind of, in a way, it's an information campaign of its own type. They're prepping the ground by saying to the new administration, yeah, this is how crazy you should know we are. This is the kind of stuff that we can do. This is the kind of stuff we're not, we're not frightened of doing at all to you and your allies. So when we sit down and talk, you should be thinking about that all the time. That's how we want you. You should be thinking about the loss of your personnel of bases in Iraq, about the attacks on your allies, about the paramilitary activity, because that's what we can do. And that's how much you should want, therefore, to make uh, peace and order with us. And that's, you know, that's how much we can we can damage stability if we choose to. And that, I think, is what this is all about. It's prepping the ground for a very tough negotiation, which the Iranians expect to begin uh, very soon. So that was actually my next question about the the U.S. administration mm -hmm. discussing, and uh, you know, it's been in the news even before the election was over about re-entering the JCPOA. Yeah. So it's interesting that many of the architects of the deal who are now in the current administration have stated that the deal did nothing to aids aid Iran's activities in the region or support its proxies. Um, basically, they they made the argument that the financial benefits Iran got from the deal did not help the proxies. I, I've seen that from Wendy Sherman, Jake Sullivan. I mean, you've written extensively about it. You've been on the ground. You've seen essentially the the havoc these Iranian-supported Shia militias uh, are wreaking, reaping all over the Middle East. So, so one, is it true? Like, did they benefit from this deal or not? And also, what would an Iran deal part two mean for Iran's militias, if anything? Mm. First of all, you know, we should be where this is a complex picture for the following reasons. Uh, the deal obviously was concluded in July uh, 2015. Prior to that, the Iranians were under pretty serious sanctions. And it is a fact that you know, the militias were extremely active in that period in Iraq, in Syria, of course, obviously in Lebanon and in Yemen too, in all four of those countries. So it's true to say that tough sanctions didn't stop the militia activity. That, that's a fact. 
Um, I think something like $150 billion, we're told, came back online for the Iranians uh, after the conclusion of the deal. And undoubtedly, I don't think Wendy Sherman or anybody else would deny this, undoubtedly a good part, a significant part of that money you know, went to the militias. The militias themselves, by the way, are not hugely expensive to run, and they cost billions of dollars, but they don't cost hundreds of billions of dollars. You know, So you know, it's, this is a fact which needs to be borne in mind. Having said that, I think we can observe over the last uh, two and a half years, that's to say since the US uh, quit the JCPOA and tough sanctions were reimposed, we can observe that you know, there was a downturn in the activities of the militias and that the militia-supported elements and indeed Iran itself were themselves facing very significant unrest that they had to deal with on the basis of economic discontent. We shouldn't forget that, you know, in the course of last year, when Iran was under very serious sanctions, there were very widespread demonstrations of discontent in Iran, in Iraq, and in Lebanon. And in all three of those cases, demonstrators, including, by the way, in the Iraqi context, demonstrators who were more or less 100% Shia Iraqis themselves, part of Iraq's Shia majority, were not frightened about pointing the finger at the militias and at the Iranian regime and saying, you're the ones who've been responsible for our impoverishment, and we, you know, we demand change. That, at least to my mind, is all good stuff. That's what we should be wanting. That's what I would imagine a U.S. administration would want as well, is, you know, grassroots challenges emerging against the militias. And the fact is that in the Iraqi and Lebanese context specifically, we can trace this and we've traced it, shortage of money was was impacting on the militias' own abilities to perform. That's to say that, you know, subsidies to Lebanese Hezbollah had been very significantly reduced. They were having trouble paying fighters. They were reducing fighters' salaries. And in Iraq, similar and this itself was producing discontent, not only among the people who live under the boot of the militias, so to speak, but also among individuals and families who are themselves aligned with the Iranian project. And that's all good stuff, I think. And that's uh, stuff which is you know, verifiable. And I'm afraid that's all stuff which is going to end the day that sanctions on Iran end. And what we'll see is we'll see a return to the type of, you know, full court press, so to speak, which the Iranians are hoping to carry out and which they carried out in our region, you know, just a few years ago. That's why they're so keen to get rid of the sanctions. The Iranian regime is, is very, very concerned about the sanctions. And my view, at least, is that, look, the Islamic Republic of Iran is our enemy. It's the enemy of Israel. It's the enemy of the United States. Openly stated, that's what it regards itself as. So we should be pleased if it's on the back foot. We should be pleased if its members are angry because they're not getting their salaries. We should be pleased if its subjects, so to speak, are rising up against it in Lebanon and Iraq and Iran. And we should be looking for ways to keep that process going. And I'm afraid a swift return to the JCPOA and a swift removal of sanctions will end all that and the militias will be pushing forward once again. And we'll see the results quite rapid, quite rapidly, I think. So what does that mean for countries like Syria and Iraq who are strongly influenced by Iran? What, what does the future hold for those countries and what are the wider implications for the region? I mean, mm. you've talked about the attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq, uh, in Iraq sorry, by Iranian militias. So it, it is surreal, bizarre, whatever you want to call it, that we are 
on the one hand, the administration is acknowledging that these attacks were sanctioned, supported, carried out by Iran on US troops. And on the other hand, we're falling over ourselves to get them back to the discussion table to essentially boost their economy. Yeah, well, of course, as we, we should be, we should remember there has been, you know, a, a notable U.S. retaliation which took place on Syrian soil for the attacks in Iraq, notably, uh, and no doubt noted by the Iranians too. The retaliation came not in Iraq, but in the more straightforward territory of Syria, of the Al Kamal area, close to the Iraqi-Syrian border. But there, there was a retaliation um, of sorts. Um, what does it mean for those countries? Uh, look, I, I want to reiterate the thing which I've said before, which is that I regard these countries today as more uh, geographical expressions rather than countries in the full sense of the word. I mean, when we talk about countries, or at least about states, I guess, you know, we talk about the need for the state to have a monopoly over the means of legitimate violence as a, as a prerequisite for the exercise of effective state authority. You know, in Syria and Iraq, that was, was long ago lost. I mean, in, uh, in Syria, the country is de facto divided into areas of control. The US and the Kurdish allies control around 30% of the country, the Turks and their Sunni Islamist allies control about 10% of the country. But even in the 60% of the country supposedly controlled by the thing that calls itself the government of Syria, I mean, the Assad regime, we would probably call it, even in that area, as we discussed earlier, the real power on the ground there is not the regime and its forces and its police and so on and so forth. It's the Russians and the Iranians. And the regime forces are able to operate only with the blessing of and under the protection of Iranian and Russian forces. So this is a country that has divided and fragmented and effectively ceased to function as a country. In Iraq, the situation is less stark than that. But nevertheless, let's not forget, in Iraq, you have a, a large population in the north of, of Iraqi Kurds, Kurds who in September 2017 voted more than 90%, 92% of them in, a, in an internationally observed referendum, voted to leave Iraq and establish a Kurdish state. And then they were prevented by force from doing so by the Iraqi forces and by their Iranian and militia allies who we discussed earlier today. So Iraq also is a country you know, very much subject to division. It's a country in which the Turks now are engaging in an active military operation in the uh, in the Sinjar area, in Gara, just in recent weeks. And the Turks maintain bases in Bashika, close to Mosul. The Iranians, of course, effectively control the government and certainly control powerful militias there. The PKK is in there. The Kurds have their own autonomy. So it's a very deeply confused and fragmented space. What does the future hold for these countries? What I'd like to say is that I don't see them getting back together again anytime soon. If we, if we think of a notion in which proper centralized governments, governance in either country would be returning, it's hard, it's hard for me to see how that would happen. I think that this fragmentation is going to carry on for a long time to come. I talked to friends in Lebanon and they talk to me about the effective death of the Lebanese state. And they don't mean there in terms of fragmentation. They just mean in terms of the 
the, frankly, the collapse of governance, the collapse of the current currency, massive international debt, leading to the inability of the economy to function, and no reform package on the table, and no willingness of international bodies, whether it's the IMF or wealthy countries in the Gulf or wealthy countries in Europe, to step in and help because the Lebanese dysfunctional system itself is not willing to or is not capable of carrying out the kinds of reforms which outside powers will require in order to inject uh, cash and, and financial resources in there. So a massive existential uh, crisis which does not seem amenable to solution anytime soon. Frankly, from a from an Arabic-speaking you know, person's point of view, I'm, I mean, I'm not an Arab, of course, but from, a, from the point of view of, of, of an Arab in the region today, I think the situation from their point of view is almost uh, it's terrible because the Arabs have really not been weaker in this region, I would say, than at any time since the collapse, since the emergence of the modern Middle East state system just over a, a century ago. You know, when I was studying Middle East studies in London, you know, a long time ago, we used to just refer to the Middle East as the Arab world. You could call it either one, the Middle East or the Arab world. You know this yourself. You know nobody would seriously use that term today. Three most powerful states in our region today happen to be the three non-Arab states of the region, namely the Republic of Turkey, Islamic Republic of Iran, and the State of Israel. You know, so the Arabs are in in a terrible state from their point of view, and I frankly don't see that changing anytime soon. Wow, that's that's interesting. So you touched on the Kurds briefly, and I know this is a huge topic. but just, I guess, as short as possible, um, where do the Kurds fit into all this and what does the future hold for the Kurds in the Middle East? Well, the Kurds today are operating two de facto autonomous regions, in uh, one in Iraq and one in northern Syria. The one in Iraq, of course, has been around since the early 90s and it's, uh, it's a very powerful uh, and quite wealthy in some parts uh, entity with its own armed forces and its own political system and so on. We saw the extent of its reach, I mean, the limits of its reach in September 2017 when it tried to cross the Rubicons, Rubicon, so to speak, and actually declare independence. And I was there at the time, and I'll be very honest that I certainly supported and identified with that uh, aspiration. But unfortunately, it did gain the support of the West and it was crushed under the boot of the Iranians and their local allies. Um, nevertheless, the Kurdish regional government uh, in northern Iraq survives. It remains the most stable and uh, uh, livable part of what is called Iraq. Uh, it's the place where Americans and, and other Western visitors visit and feel very welcome and don't have to take the kind of security precautions they, they need to take very much you know, further south in Baghdad or in Basra. And I think that the Kurdish regional government in Iraq is, is set to survive and hopefully to continue to flourish. Um, I don't think its destruction will be permitted by the United States or other Western backers, thankfully. So I think it will continue to, to for the foreseeable future, live in this kind of limbo in a way between uh, full sovereignty and autonomy. And I hope very much at a certain stage, sometime in the future, the stars will align, so to speak, to allow once more for a push for independence, which I hope will prove successful. In Syria, the entity, Kurdish entity is much weaker, much more preliminary. It's only been around for, uh, you know, for about, well, just under a decade, eight years, effectively, or nine years now. Um, but at the same time, it's also pretty stable. But there, it's 
uh, based, it's dependent very much on the continued presence of the Americans. America has, the US has around a thousand uh, service personnel inside uh, Syria. If and when those are removed, then uh, I'm afraid the Kurdish entity could well you know, be reabsorbed back, either back into Assad's control or much worse from their point of view, subject to a Turkish incursion and invasion, which could well result in ethnic cleansing, since we know the Turkish uh, approach to Kurdish autonomy. So my sense, though, is that Trump, President Trump announced a withdrawal that then let the Turks in, but then reversed it. Uh, the current team that Biden's put together, including such people as Brett McGurk, who, who we knew from uh, from previous administrations, you know, are very keen on ensuring Kurdish success. They're regarded as friends of the Kurds, and so I think right now the prospect for Syrian Kurdistan is looking okay. You know, I certainly hope they'll hang on. They are once again, it should be said, the most well-governed and livable part of Syria right now. You may well say the competition isn't that great, and I may well agree with you, but nevertheless, that remains a fact. Just lastly and quickly, with regard to the biggest Kurdish population, of course, which is in Turkey, and with regard to the most silent Kurdish population, which is in Iran, uh, the prospects for autonomy are, are much less good, precisely because unlike in Iraq and in Syria, the Iranian state and the Turkish state, as we already said, are powerful, you know, state authorities with the capacity of preventing any uh, any such move on the part of the Kurds. But having said that, certainly in the Turkish sense, uh, HD, the HDP party, whilst its leader Salahattin Demirtas is, is in jail, that remains one of the most potent voices against the emergent uh, authoritarian regime of Erdogan and the AKP. And HDP is a party created by and still largely crewed by uh, Kurds of Turkish citizenship. So, you know, the Kurds remain a consequential population also inside Turkey. And inside Iran, I'm afraid, and I've reported on this as well from, from close in, um, you know, I'm afraid in Iran that the Kurds remain a deeply impoverished and, and deeply oppressed population inside their provinces they live, which is Kurdistan province and Western Azerbaijan uh, province. The Revolutionary Guards are very, very active and very, very brutally oppressive. You know, far from the the attention of global media, but very brutally oppressive towards any Kurdish attempts, and there are attempts at self-organization. So that's the way one looks at it overall. Yeah, for the Kurds, you know, it's never. It's never been great in, in the modern system in the Middle East. But they do have two powerful autonomous authorities right now, which are geographically contingent to one, uh, contiguous to one another and which are uh, powerful, disunited, but powerful. And I think from that point of view, they have on what to build. And certainly I hope that they will go on to build that. And I do hope that in the West, in the US, and among your know, friends of Israel and friends, I would say, of the of the right forces in the Middle East, I would hope very much you know won't forget won't forget the Kurds in that regard. Wow. So finally, to wrap up, is there anything? And I guess for, particularly for an American audience, yeah, is there anything we should be keeping an eye on in the Middle East in 2021? Anything which is flying under the radar, something that is developing which just hasn't made it to kind of the mainstream media? Because, like I said early on. You and your colleagues have always, for me at least, it's a go-to resource because you're very much ahead of the curve. So is there anything that we should be aware of as we go into 20, so we're in 2021 now, that could be a developing story in the Middle East? Well, I do think there is one element I would like to add. I mean, I think, we have, I think we've discussed 
you know, exactly most of what I think of as the key uh, trends and lines and processes in the region. But there's one thing which we didn't discuss, which I think is insufficiently discussed, and which I think is of interest to the uh, American audience, and that is the fate of Christian communities uh, in the Middle East. And I think very specifically, Christian communities in the areas we've been talking about, in Syria and especially in, uh, in Iraq. You know, these are some of the oldest Christian communities in, uh, in the world. And especially in Iraq, especially in a place called the Nineveh Plain, which of course will be familiar to people who know their Bible, you know, the Nineveh Plain, there are ancient Christian communities there that suffered dreadfully under the advance of the Islamic State in 2014. Many of them were killed, many, many of them left their homes but which have not been able to rebuild their lives in the post-ISIS period, going back to a set of customers that we've already discussed today, which is that because of the strength of Shia militias on the ground in those areas, Christians today are being harassed. Christians today are finding themselves unable to return home or finding that Shia Iraqis and Shia militias are establishing themselves and their places of prayer and their places of organization inside areas of Christian uh, residence without permission being asked. So this is, these, there are Christian communities there that I'm afraid are under some very heavy pressure, if I can put it that way, from the emergent power of the Shia militias that have suffered terribly because of ISIS in recent years. Obviously, the Pope, the Pope was just in Iraq, and I think you know, mentioned some of this, but we need to keep on thinking about this also when the Pope's gone. These communities are still there. They, I think, very much want the help of their, and the attention at least, of their uh, fellow Christians you know, in the United States, not least. And that's something which I think is, is worth bearing in mind. They deserve to have their their uh, needs you know, considered. And I would add, not only, even not only Christian communities, but I would also, also that picture the Yazidi community, which people are probably familiar with, effectively targeted for genocide by the Islamic State. Since largely forgotten by the global media, who very rarely write about them anymore, but still suffering from some really you know, awful stuff, also at the hands of the forces that have risen up in Iraq in the post-ISIS period, the Shia militias and uh, and others, and of course the Turks and their, and their allies on the other side. This is stuff which I think deserves greater attention. And just lastly, we did mention Yemen, but I do think also that the situation inside Yemen and the Iranian and Houthi threat, which their engagement in Yemen is, deserves greater media coverage and greater attention, not only by publics, but I think also by policymakers and governments and elected representatives too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that, Jonathan. That's all, unfortunately, all we have time for. Um, thank you for taking some time out to speak to us. It really was incredibly enlightening. And we're going to have to get you back on because you just comments at the end have given me another slew of questions I've got. And I'm sure our listeners would also be interested in. So thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you for answering our questions. And you have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Cassie. Most welcome. Always happy to talk to you. All right. Thank you. Take care. That was Jonathan Spire. What did I tell you at the start of the show? The guy is a wealth of knowledge and incredible insight and analysis. I'm sure we'll have him back on the show at some point because there are so many more questions, especially about topics like the Kurds that I'd really like to dive into for our listeners. But moving on, next is our biblical segment, Today, it's being done by Kufi on Campus Midwest Coordinator, Cherith Runyon. Cherith is, I don't have a little sister, but if I did, it would probably be Cherith. She is an incredible human being. 
a fantastic colleague and just so motivated, driven in the incredible things she does for Israel and the Jewish people. So without further ado, it's over to you, Cherith. Thank you so much, Kasim. Hello, and my name is Cherith. I am the Midwest Regional Coordinator for KUFI on campus, and it is such a pleasure to be here. I'm here with a devotional for you today. And I just want to say that during this time of unrest, we see a lot of uncertainty. We wonder if God is still moving or what good could possibly come from all of the strife that we are seeing. However, despite all of the ugly, the bad news, and the evil going on with the struggle that we see in Iran, Syria, and other countries, we know that God is faithful and there is a purpose throughout all of this. I want you to remember the story of Gideon. Gideon was a mighty warrior for God during the time of the judges. He led armies, rescued the Israelites with God's help, and performed great acts of bravery. However, he didn't start there. As we see in Judges chapter 6, verse 11, Gideon was the least of everything, the very bottom of the totem pole. He didn't have any special skill or calling that would indicate leadership, but he was willing to do what God said. And as we all know, Gideon and 300 Israelites, with God's leading, destroyed the Midianite army. Gideon was faithful to do what God called him to, and God brought the victory. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 9, we see the account of Rahab. Rahab was an outcast of society and certainly not welcome in the Israelite camp. However, she recognized the one true God and was faithful to the calling he gave her to hide the Israelite spies and protect them from those who were seeking to kill them. God rewarded her faithfulness by bringing her into the house of Israel and actually allowed her to be one of the distant great-grandmothers of Jesus. To top it all off, she's mentioned in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. Such an amazing account of faithfulness. And of course, Abraham. Abraham was given the promise by God that he would become a great nation. We actually see this in Kufi's main verse, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Did he see the fulfillment of that promise? Could he even conceptualize how it would be brought about? No, probably not. But we do. Thousands of years later, we see that promise fulfilled by Almighty God, the incredible state of Israel. My friends, I want you to remember something. We see the strife, we hear the bad news, and we think, is my work even making an impact? Well, I am here today to tell you that it absolutely is, and it is worth every bit of your strength. Each one of us is given a purpose by God to accomplish. It might not be glamorous or what you expect, but nothing you do in God's will is ever wasted. As we see in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We may not see the end result of the perpetual fight raging in the Middle East, but God's people will be protected, and we have been given the divine privilege of protecting them. What an honor! 
So your purpose is to be the man or woman of God he has created you to be. So stand up for truth, speak life, and be empowered by the word of God. Our God has already won the battle, but he has created good works in advance for us to do, and we must accomplish our purpose. Thank you so much for listening, and no matter what today holds, let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Have a beautiful and blessed day. Wow, that was incredibly powerful, Cherith, and I'm definitely going to go back and listen to that probably a couple more times. I will touch on that in a second, but first, another message from Kufi. To make a difference, we first need the facts. Kufi's in-depth primers provide our members with the information they need to be knowledgeable defenders of Israel. Get informed about the Iranian regime and its deadly proxies, Hezbollah and Hamas. Discover more about Israel's biblical claim to the ancient land and to the city of Jerusalem. And learn how you can help fight the alarming rise of anti-Semitism in the United States and around the world. These free digital primers are invaluable resources that will help you make the case for Israel knowledgeably with your friends, family, and co-workers. Visit www.kufi.org forward slash learn forward slash read forward slash issues dash analysis. That is www.kufi.org forward slash learn forward slash issues dash analysis to start learning today. Okay, I'm back. Well, I was back with that message from Kufi. But no, I just wanted to say that was really inspiring from Cherith. You know, a couple of things I took from that were, you know, where we start isn't where we end up as long as we're faithful to God's calling and we can do truly incredible things. And also that each one of us has a purpose and a calling. And sometimes, like she said, it isn't glamorous. Sometimes it isn't, you know, on a stage or in front of a crowd, but we are making a difference. And that is so important. So thank you so much for that, Cherith. I would advise anyone who listened to that, go back, give that a listen, maybe listen to it for a few days and let it really sink in. And that is all we have time for for this episode of the Kufi Middle East Briefing. Thank you once again for joining us. Hope you have a wonderful week. You know I'm going to do what I have to do all the time. Not have to, but want to do. Share with your friends. Leave us a review on iTunes. Spread the news, the, the podcast news. <laughs> Tell everyone you know to listen to it. Send us your feedback. Give us a good review. We're always here to listen. And if you have any suggestions, just let us know. This is Kasim Hafiz wishing you a great week. Thank you and God bless.